Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. My name is Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we will be discussing the Academy Award nominations in preparation for the ceremony this Sunday evening. We will not be running through every single category, but we have selected uh, the sort of most notable categories, and we'll be going through the nominees, uh, how we think the categories have sort of panned out, and our predictions for the winners. We will also have a mini up on Patreon the day after the Oscars, or two days after. We'll record it right after the ceremony with our reactions to the ceremony and the winners, which hopefully won't be as bad as last year <laughs> when memorably Green Book won Best Picture. And for our listeners who have not been with us for previous Oscar years, just FYI, Morgan is a genuine Oscar expert. She like follows this shit. She knows how it works. I know how it works as much as any other average film critic. Um, her predictions are relatively likely to be accurate-ish. Mine are whatever the fuck I think. <laughs> so yeah. we've got it balanced. <laughs> yes. Well, normally I follow this stuff really, really closely. And this year has been... I mean, I've still followed the general race a lot but like normally I have really really strong opinions about all the craft categories and I don't as much this year partially just because like I've had health problems for the last month where a lot of this stuff gets discussed but also because the season has been very shortened which we will be discussing throughout this episode the Oscars are two or three weeks early and so everything has been moved up so there was less time for people to watch movies this year which has seems to have affected the nominations and this season has just felt a bit anemic I think and so it just has been a bit boring, and I think the people who are voting on these things have not been as engaged, which I kind of suspect also has to do with politics. Uh, everyone is paying a lot of attention to the election in the United States, which I haven't really seen discussed by like pundits, but I actually do think that that is definitely a factor here. Yeah, it's been a bit of an odd year. I've also like haven't seen a couple of the big movies, which isn't usually the case. Like I deliberately skipped Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody last year, but I saw pretty much everything else. And this year I missed a few more things because I wasn't feeling well. Um, but I don't think I've missed anything that's gonna like win stuff. So I think between us we've got all of the main ones covered because I had no interest in watching The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and you've seen all three of those, so... No, I haven't seen Jojo Rabbit. Oh, okay, well, you know. <laughs> so we have no we have no comments on that, but I don't think that's going to win anything. So, But we're going to start with Best Picture to give a sort of general overview of the field, and then we'll sort of move down to the craft categories and sort of move slowly up to the bigger categories with you know the actors and director near the end of the episode. Yeah, so these are allegedly the nine best films of 2019, according to the Oscars. We've discussed in many episodes over the past year what a great film year for films this has been, particularly uh, women directors. The list of nominees is not reflective of that quality or that gender split. Morgan, take us away. <laughs> so the nominees for Best Picture are Ford v. Ferrari, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. Um, this is bad. This is a bad list of films. There's like a couple of good films on there. There's like one really brilliant film, a couple of films where I'm like, good. And then the rest of it is like, ugh. <laughs> so I've seen, like most pundits I've seen writing and heard talking about this seem to be pretty up on this list because I think most people are really into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Irishman. 
And I've said on this podcast previously that I really need to watch The Irishman again because when I saw it, I was like on weird migraine medication that turned me into a zombie. So that was not an ideal state. But I don't think that even if I rewatched it, which I will before the Oscars, that I would love it. I think like I respect it. I think it's a perfectly decent movie, but I do not think it's amazing. I would not have nominated it for this. I've seen like maybe five Scorsese movies. I loved all of them. They were all great. Um, I have obviously nothing against Scorsese. I'd like to see several of his other like big hits. The Irishman holds no interest for me. Um, no. I mean, once you've watched more of his stuff, I I do think you should see this at some point because it is connected to his other movies in an interesting way. Like it is commenting on them in a way that is it's interesting. Like I yeah, I'm not mad about this being here, but I wouldn't have personally nominated it. And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think is bad. So that is what sort of sets me apart from, I think a lot of the critics were more happy with this list. And I thought 1917 was garbage. So it's just like, okay, well, here we are. And I didn't particularly I like 1917, women, so. but I'm also like, whatever. I mean, also contextually, so The Irishman, 1917, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood all got 10 nominations total, and Joker got 11. And if you, I think I heard on a this had Oscar Buzz podcast when they were talking about this stuff. We'll link to that. They had done some math. And if you knock out like the short categories and like documentary, right? So categories for which they, these films couldn't get nominations. Those movies encompass like 70% of the nominations, which is a massively higher figure than is normally the case. So the group think here is really, really strong, which I think probably has something to do with a compressed calendar, although it's impossible to totally know what was going on. And they're all like really big brands, you know, they're like simple movies that are conceptually easy to explain, but they're by, they're either like, apart from Joker, which is like, as we've discussed, the film of 2019, even though we hated it, like huge brand, huge money push behind it from the studio, like a lot of financing for promotional stuff during the award season. But like the other three, it's like you've got such massive heavy hitter directors that they are so established and entrenched. It's basically kind of the opposite end from, say, Greta Gerwig, who is like obviously a long established Hollywood figure, figure but she's, you know, in her 30s and she's a woman and she's making a film for girls. So, you know. Yes. I've seen some interesting commentary about this recently. Kyle Buchanan, who writes about movies in the Oscars for the New York Times, who I think is totally great, and wrote an interesting and sort of persuasive argument about why expanding the best picture field has been good for the Oscars, because it means that smaller movies like The Farewell, even though that didn't get nominated, A24 campaigned it because they thought there was a chance that it would get nominated. And that meant that it got a lot more exposure, which is definitely like a positive. But the other thing that has happened, which Mark Harris wrote about uh, a few years ago, I'll see if I can find that essay, although it was a while ago, is that since that expansion, fewer movies total have gotten nominated every year because there are tend to nominate the movies they nominate for Best Picture more in the other categories, which has happened this year to like an extreme degree. So they pick the movies that they like a lot and then nominate them for more stuff. So actually fewer movies are getting exposure in the whole nomination process. And this is just like the apotheosis of this, right? Because they pick the four movies they like the best. And Parasite also got six nominations and I actually think has the second best chance of actually winning the thing. But they just went so hard for these white man movies in a way that is really, really boring to me. So we should say that the 1917 is the favorite at this point. It has won the 
Producers Guild Award, which tends to be the most predictive thing for Best Picture, and also won Directors Guild for Sam Mendes. That suggests that it's probably going to win here. Parasite won the Screen Actors Guild, which they give for like ensemble cast. And that is sort of their best picture, right? Because they're voting on acting. And it's also got like the most buzz. Like yeah. obviously the, there are other films on this list which are better known. Um, probably Tarantino's film is like one of the, I mean, Joker is the best known film, but maybe like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But in terms of I guess like virality and the way people are just absolutely raving about the experience of seeing Parasite and how unusual it feels. That film is its just like everyone who watches it is like, this is a masterpiece. Yeah. So actually, why don't we hold the rest of that conversation for when we get to director? But those are kind of the two top contenders, I would say. But 1917 has a ton, a ton of nominations and I think it's probably going to win the most because it's such a technical accomplishment we're not going to talk about all the craft categories because I just don't have very much to say about sound but I think it's probably going to win like that kind of stuff in the you usually see one movie like Mad Max won a bunch of technical Oscars in its year even though it didn't win best picture because they'll just decide that like this movie is the most impressive 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 accomplishment yeah they built the trenches right even though I mean I think that part of the reason this movie is doing so well, and this uh, another podcast I was listening to, uh, hosted by Nathaniel Rogers, who runs the website The Film Experience, and I'll link to this as well. They had a really good Oscar conversation. He was like, well, I think the, movie, the reason this movie is doing so well is that it's totally apolitical, which so many of these other movies aren't. And I was like, yes, that's correct. It is a really... Because obviously there is no such thing as apolitical art, and it is a film which is about the greatness of like the British army... And they have quite a positive view of the ruling classes, which is amusing. <laughs> but it is, by comparison, you can just be like, this is a neutral film, which is like emotionally sincere and acts as a thriller, but in like a smarty pants way. So it is it is a very conventional Oscar choice. I actually liked this film a lot more than Morgan. There are several movies on this list where I would be like disgusted if, if they won Best Picture, but with this one, I'd be like, fine, whatever. The, the film we're all going to be remembering from this year is Parasite anyway. Well... The interesting thing is that it's like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think is a worse movie than 1917. Like the script is a huge fucking mess. The direction is really all over the place. It is bizarre. The background to me. politics, grotesque. Well, <laughs> this is the thing. I I don't want this movie to win Best Picture. I don't think it's going to. I think it. Well, we'll get into what it might win, but I don't think it's going to win a ton of things. And like I would not have nominated it. I, Quentin Tarantino is a grotesque figure. The fact that he hasn't suffered any repercussions from the Weinstein stuff is just appalling to me. But I think this movie is so much more interesting than 1917. Like I have thought about it a ton. Whereas 1917, I was just like, this is so dull. Like please. it is an experience movie rather than a thought movie. Right. You and, experience 1917. Yeah. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood actually has some stuff in it that is really enjoyable and works well. So like the performances in that movie are genuinely fantastic and pleasurable to watch, which I think is why it's done so well. Like people just have a good time watching it, even though things about it don't work. And it undeniably reflects certain cultural things about our current moment, even though those things are not necessarily good. So again, I don't want this movie to win. It's not going to. But it would be so much more reflective of like 2019 than 1917, which has nothing to say about anything, which is just an interesting sort of conundrum, right? Of like, so they're probably going to go with this like nothing film 
Um, <laughs> the uh, the opposite end of the scale being Joker, which right. achieved its longevity through literally everyone arguing about it for almost a full calendar year. Yes. <laughs> and it's just like, it provokes so many conversations and it thinks it's saying something, but what it's actually saying is something else. And that is just incredibly fruitful in terms of constant publicity. Yep. Okay, so let's go into the craft nominations. We'll talk a little bit more about Best Picture at the end of the episode. Gabia, since this is your area, would you like to read out the nominations for costume design? As is traditional, these are all historical dramas. Usually the costume design category is dominated by historical or sci-fi fantasy movies because the costumes are much more noticeable there. It's quite rare to get contemporary films. So we have... The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, as I've said, I've actually not seen three of these movies, um, so I don't have like an in-depth comment on them. Even though I didn't like Joker, I thought the costumes in that were pretty respectable because it's kind of set in like a 1980s New York setting and the costumes in general, aside from obviously the Joker costume, which is intentionally really theatrical, it had quite a like realistic tone rather than seeming really pastiche and period-like, which I respect. Um, Jojo Rabbit definitely looks like it's more in the pastiche zone. I loved Little Women's costumes. I thought they were fantastic. They were like a really amazing combination of sort of historical research into the correct period and location. And also a lot of thought went into the way each individual character's personality shone through in their costumes, which isn't always the case in historical dramas, especially where it's like a female-led movie, where there's a lot of kind of pretty dresses, which is sort of the stereotype of a movie like this. And Jacqueline Duran, I love her. She costumed The Pride and Prejudice with Keira Knightley, which is sort of famous for being sort of realistic, you know, not really prettifying its characters. And I just felt like Little Women's kind of fem- feminist themes really came through. I interviewed her. We will link to that in the show notes. Definitely my favourite to win would be Little Women, no particular opinion on the three films I didn't see here. Um, the costumes in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are totally amazing. Okay. I think Little Woman is probably going to win. My comment on these nominations is that every single one of these films is nominated for Best Picture, which the costume branch almost never does. And this is another example of just like lazy thinking, right? Like, surely you have seen other movies or have they not? Like, Come the fuck on. I just find this so boring. I mean, nominating the Irishman for costume design, the costumes in that are are totally fine. Like they they work for the movie. Sandy Powell did those costumes, which I along with Christopher Peterson, Sandy Powell is a legend. I kind of suspect that's why this is nominated. I mean, she has like 15 Oscars. Right. You know. But like it's like men wearing suits. I mean, usually in this category, I'm like, first of all, I want more contemporary movies to be nominated and for people to recognize that's also part of the category. But I'm also like, I really want Star Wars to win this. And this is the first year where I've not been beating down the Academy's door, like, give it to Star Wars. Um, Because Michael Kaplan, who did incredible work on The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, The Rise of Skywalker did not, it was like the first and only Star Wars film that was not an interesting costume movie because there were only like, there was only like one main character that got a big new costume. And obviously it's always loads of impressive work on the background characters, which is where that franchise really shines. But the way the film was shot meant that we didn't fucking see any of them because it was so chaotic. There was no kind of memorable moments for side characters in the background which you got in lots of the other films so if only we could retroactively award michael kaplan an oscar for the last jedi unfortunately not um but yeah this list is pretty expected and dull to me 
Uh, is there something you would like to add here? I think we should do that for each category to, to add some spice. A movie you would like to add. Yeah, I would add Hustlers to this list. So good. Amazing yeah. costumes. They add so much to what the movie is saying about those people and the time period. Great stuff. Uh, I would say yeah, this souvenir. is like a historical, non-historical, because it's like yeah. 10 to 15 years ago, but it pinpoints it perfectly. All oh, amazing looks. Uh, yeah, souvenir for me, which is also like period, but not so, so long ago. And we talked about that on our episode last week. Great, great clothes in that movie. Okay, original score. Uh, Joker, Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. So we got... Four Best Picture nominees and John Williams, because anytime John Williams scores a movie, they are contractually obliged to give him an Oscar nomination for it. I mean, he is a loving genius. uh, 53rd nomination, which feels like too many to me. I mean, obviously he's great, (laughs) but like, no comment about this particular I mean, one of the really funny things about this category is the number of movies that Hollywood composer can do in a year is wild like john williams is not really the same here he is not like a jobbing composer who's doing dozens of films star wars is his magnum opus the work on these is just astonishing like amazing amazing scores as we all know but if you look at someone someone like alexandra desplat who did uh little women he just does like nine films a year and there's quite a lot of people like michael giacchino who does like you know look at his imdb and be like oh okay i guess you're scoring like five films and i don't know how the fuck they do it they are just incredibly fast writers and that must be just how like film composers work but um kind of in the same way as costume design it's sort of a limited category where the same people just get nominated over and over and over and over again which is almost this entire category apart from joker well yeah the music branch is i mean i think generally agreed by people who pay a lot of attention to this stuff the worst branch of the oscars so i would If people listening to this aren't aware, the way the Oscar nominations work is that people who are members of a particular branch vote on those nominations and also Best Picture. So like if you're a composer, you vote for the music categories and then also Best Picture. If you design costumes, you vote for that and then Best Picture as well. And they're all a bit incestuous because if you work in Hollywood, you know these other people and you want to vote for your friends and whatever. But it varies the degree to which that is true in each category. The music branch is the worst. Like, by far the worst. It is also the most male-dominated. This and the cinematographers. I think the the proportion of, like, working film composers in, like, the gender split is 99% men working film composers. It's crazy. But, like, we're not going to talk about original song in depth, but they routinely skip, like, the one actually good song that's every year which they did this year which is the song glasgow from the movie wild rose which is actually an amazing song and they didn't nominate it which like why what's the point of this and has a really cool real life backstory because the woman who wrote it is like she's a she's a character actress and uh she had surgery and when she when she woke up from surgery she suddenly became a composer it's much more complicated than that but it's really cool yeah we'll link to that article as well there are gonna be a million links at the end of this but it's genuinely like amazing but they just they're so bad they're so bad and they always nominate the same five people for this. And like Randy Newman has been nominated 20 times, I think. He's nominated for Marriage Story here. And he's never won, which is crazy. But like that score is really great. I'm not upset about that nomination. But Desplat, Randy Newman, his relative Thomas Newman, and John Williams all being nominated here is just like, great, okay. However, the person who's going to win this category, like almost certainly, is the woman who did the score for Joker, whose name I really cannot Hildur Gunnarsdottir. There you go. Thank you. Who also did the music for Chernobyl. She's kind of a rising 
composer. And yeah. I did not particularly like the mu- music for Joker. I thought it was fine. It's used in a very aggravating way in the movie, but I do not care because she seems nice and she's a woman, which is sad. I mean, I think she's like, a really comp- interesting composer. Her music for Joker is like, I think it's like partly, it's like your opinion is like colored by your experience of the Joker. I didn't come out of that movie thinking, wow, I love the music in that, but I really like her work in general she's not sort of a traditional orchestral film composer she's a bit more experimental than you usually see nominated to this in this category especially for big mainstream hits uh she kind of primarily is a cellist which i love because i too am a much more amateur cellist but she also like collaborates with people like throbbing gristle which is delightful um (laughs) and her her music sort of very alarming and I love an alarming composer. Um, and I really, really liked her work on Chernobyl, which is the quintessential piece of alarming media from 2019. So, <laughs> uh, Is there anything you would add here? Um, oh, yeah. Okay. I would nominate Midsummer. Yes. The score to Midsummer is like the wildest score of 2019. It is by a man slash band named the Hacks and Cloak. I forget his real name, but he is this like gothic noise artist who I really like if I really want to like feel really bad. Um, I listened to his music, which kind of, he has this album, which kind of sounds like you're just like falling down a hole. Uh, it's not, it's, it's technically music, but it's not very melodic. Um, and it kind of, it's like a cross between the experience of falling down an endless hole and the experience of going to one of those corny haunted house exhibits where they have spooky noises. And he did the music for Midsummer, which is a combination of like, that sort of like oh spooky horror movie music like that but also really really well researched um scandinavian folk uh which was also partly kind of performed within the film and it was such an interesting project and i would i just i just thought that was amazing and it was really interesting to just read interviews with him and how he co- how he collaborated with the director of midsummer um i wish that had been recognized here because it was brilliant yeah i would add the last black man in san francisco which i mentioned last week and then the score for Uncut Gems, which is fucking awesome. Very sort of uh, aggressive techno music. Excellent stuff. That will be coming up a few times in this list. Not because it was nominated, but because I think it should have been. All right. So next category is production design, which is always an interesting one. Um, and you also have a bit more variety here than costumes. So we have The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. Actually, looking back over that list, I said that we usually have more variety. Actually, this is for historical dramas and Parasite. And they're all nominated for Best Picture. So And they're all nominated for Best Picture. Um, as we discussed at length in our Parasite episode, I think we both hope that Parasite wins this. The production design in that was like a classic example of like, oh, it's contemporary. Maybe you wouldn't consider what's got what got into the production design for this movie. They built and designed an entire house. Um, and that house was built and designed around just the concept of where the shots would be in the film. Forgot to mention this in our Parasite episode, but it reminded me a lot of um, the way that the Overlook Hotel was designed for The Shining, where they like invented this incredibly complex interior landscape for the hotel that has this like real psychological impact on the viewer without you necessarily knowing what's going on. So that is, Parasite is definitely my pick here. Well, it's your preference, but... It's my preference. It's not my prediction by any means. Yes. (laughs) I mean, probably 1917 is going to win this one. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is probably going to win. Although, well, here's how I would lay this out. I think if 1917 wins it, which would not surprise me at all, then that's a sign that it's 
strong overall, right? Like if 1917 just sweeps everything, it's probably going to win Best Picture. If Parasite wins, which is very unlikely, but if it does, then that's a sign that that movie is really strong and has a good shot of winning Best Picture. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has a huge number of sets and locations, and they do a very good job of recreating 1969 Los Angeles. And they did a lot of miniatures, don't they? Yes. everyone loves a miniature. Yeah. And I think that that will appeal to people. I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think that like the cinematography and direction on that level is not impressive. But the actual like aesthetic of that film in terms of like the costumes and the production design is really, really impressive. So like, I'm not upset this got nominated here. And I suspect that that's going to be very appealing to people. But 1917 wouldn't surprise me either. I think it's kind of between those two. But I would guess Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we will see what happens. Do you have anything you would like to add to this category? Yes. Yes, I do. I want to add two movies. I want to add The Lighthouse and High Life. Yeah. Um, The Lighthouse is like just really detailed, weird historical location they built for the titular lighthouse. High Life was just a wonderful, wonderful, creepy spaceship, which we discussed in our High Life episode, where the interior of the spaceship just kind of looks almost like just apartments, which is an interesting choice for a futuristic sci-fi movie. But the layout of the spaceship internally is sort of thematically relevant to the film and kind of works almost like a human body where there's areas of the ship that are kind of the digestion and the brain and that sort of thing. And I just loved it. Loved it. Yeah, I would add the souvenir here as well. They recreated Joanna Hogg's apartment from the 1980s exactly. And I think did a really good job with the other sets too of evoking that particular time and like class milieu and also Ad Astra, which had really, really amazing sets. Uh, Ad Astra should have been nominated for a lot more technical awards, but they didn't campaign it. So film editing is our next category. So the nominees here are Ford v. Ferrari, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, and Parasite, which again are all nominees for Best Picture. <laughs> which is less unusual actually in, in editing, but uh, this, you'll you see the trend here. I think probably the Irishman wins just because Thelma Schoenmacher, who is a legend, edited it. I mean, it's not badly edited at all, but um, I don't really have a strong opinion about this. Yeah, I don't have strong thoughts in this category. I will say that in the likely event that she wins, there's going to be a lot of really stupid conversations about how long The Irishman is, because yeah. a lot of people mistake film editing for making a film shorter, which is not what that means. No. So it's like, maybe The Irishman's meant to be three hours long. Yeah, three and a half, in fact. I mean, it's well edited. She's amazing. But I don't really, yeah, I don't feel much about this. I will say Ford v. Ferrari is, which we disagree about, the technical accomplishment of that movie, like, it is an incredibly, incredibly well-made film. It got nominated in the sound categories too, which I was very happy about because the sound of that movie is unbelievable. And it's definitely a very deserved, deserving nominee here. I would. Is it? Is it? Yes. <laughs> it is. I'm sorry to break Ugh. it to you, but like the just on a technical level, the editing of that movie is really impressive. I think that what kind of happened with that movie is that 1917 stole its thunder on a technical level. Um, and that if it hadn't, if the Fox Disney merger hadn't happened, that that movie would have gotten a lot more nominations, which like, I'm not sad about that, but I think that that's kind of the, what wound up happening, which is interesting to think about just in terms of a corporate 
situation. Ford v. Ferrari is a movie that your divorced father watches on a plane. Gavia, that movie made like over $100 million in the United States. Yeah, there's a lot of dads out there. I think in order to make that much money, the women have to be going too. I hate to break yeah, it to you. Yeah, and you love this movie. So thematically and conceptually, you are a dad. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, <laughs> what I liked about this movie was I thought, again, I thought the direction was really outstanding. James Mangold just knows how to make a movie which I appreciate a lot. I loved Logan. I really liked Logan. And I, if only Logan had received the recognition that Joker is currently getting. Yeah. Much better film. Yep. And I really liked that this was a movie about how uh, film studios are bad, which given that it was a big studio movie was entertaining to me. A subtext, which I'm sure a good 2% of the audience picked up on. I mean, the fact that it's about how corporations are bad is pretty obviously textual in this film. But the fact that it's an original property that made over $100 million is, like, good. I don't care what Although the fucking Although it is an original is property that is about the Ford Motor Company being the underdogs in a car race. Right. But, like, honestly, who gives a shit? Like, I'm glad- I didn't like 1917 at all, and I'm like, great, make as much money as you fucking can, because the alternative is Joker. <laughs> like- we can't it's be true. picky at this point, right? Like, anything that is not a superhero movie making a lot of money is a good thing. And herein we have the motivation for quite a lot of Oscar voters, especially of the elder elderly variety, I think. Yeah, I mean, fair enough, honestly. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. So, yeah, I think The Irishman probably wins that. Uh, do you have any strong feelings about adding something to editing? This is just not something that I think about no. a lot. I would add Apollo 11, which they would never think about because they don't think about documentaries in this way. But they had... But literally the whole concept of Apollo 11 right. is we edited this footage. And they had like thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. I mean, obviously all documentaries are accomplishments of editing, but that movie in particular, I think, is a huge editing feat. So That is such a good point. You're completely right. That is what it should be. International feature film. Take us away. Okay, so we've got Corpus Christi which is Polish, I believe. Yes. Honeyland, Les Miserables, not to be confused by the actual Les Miserables. This is an original film. Pain and Glory and Parasite. So we've got kind of a mixture here between very well-known directors and much lesser known directors and also like an interesting combination of sort of subject matter. This is a really cool lineup. I've actually only seen one of these movies, but I would happily watch like most of them. Obviously Parasite we've discussed and is the front runner and is a massive name. Corpus Christi looks fantastic. That film is about a man who pretends to be a priest. Honeyland is actually a documentary. Double nominated. Yep. Yeah, I've heard great things about that. Definitely want to see that. Les Miserables is out in the UK in April. I just checked this today because I was like, hey, I thought that movie had come out. Um, and it's kind of a real life drama set in Paris about sort of police and racial tensions and class struggle and that kind of thing. And Pain and Glory, we have discussed on one of our film festival podcasts, which Morgan has seen and has some opinions about. Yeah, I liked this movie fine. I didn't love it. I gave it like a B, I think, in my spreadsheet. It's the Al Motivar movie. Antonio Banderas is amazing, amazing, amazing in this. Parasite, which is the other nominee, is going to win this category for sure. Honeyland is really wonderful. I've seen that. I have not seen Corpus Christi or Les Mis. Uh, the thing that got left out here that people were sad about was Atlantics, the Maddie Diop movie. But what can you do? I mean, the big bummer of this was they do a shortlist for this, and then people vote on like nine movies. And 
they have like a bake-off and then a special committee adds a few movies to like save them that are often sort of more artistically interesting or that's the theory and uh they didn't save any movies from latin or south america which was controversial so there's also kind of like a couple of overlapping issues with the way that those nominees work because like each country nominates one film so there is often like controversies over for example in brazil there were like a couple of movies that were really big internationally this year and as listeners will know i am obsessed with baccarat baccarat was not nominated by brazil because it is way too politically controversial and then in france like obviously there's always quite a lot of films which are really big critical commercial successes in the english-speaking world from france because there's a lot of kind of cultural crossover and artistic promotion um so they just have to pick one film and that happened to be Les Mis this year. There's also the fact that there were several films which were disqualified because of kind of language issues where uh, the Academy was like, oh, this isn't actually a film from your country because part of it is in English or part of it is not in your native language. And wouldn't you know that that was films which were directed by and starred black people? Well, and this was some perhaps racist choices. I mean, I think they need to revise that rule, but that rule has been in place for the entire history of this category. So, like, again, I don't, I think they need to revise the rule, but people submitting the movies, they know the rule. So it's going to get disqualified, right? Like, there's there's no way that that's going to be allowed in. So maybe they did it knowing that it would get attention and that they would be able to then say it needs, the rule needs to change. Or I don't know what the thought process was, but it's not, anything that gets submitted in English is not going to be allowed. So that was a bit of a sort of odd situation, I thought. I don't think the one movie per per country rule is fixable. Like, it's unfortunate for Portrait of a Lady on Fire this year is a bummer that it couldn't get nominated. But if they changed that, you would have like four movies from France every year. So we're moving on. Best documentary feature, American Factory, The Cave, The Edge of Democracy, Forsama, and Honeyland. I have seen three of these. I still need to see The Cave and At the Edge of Democracy. Uh, American Factory is really great. It's not perfect, but it's it's on Netflix. I would really recommend it to anyone. It's about this uh, this factory that had gone out of business in, I can't remember what state. It's in the middle of America somewhere. And then this Chinese company buys it and sort of reopens it. And the sort of cultural clashes between Chinese workers that bring in and the Chinese management and the American workers and managers and the economic situation. And it is just really, really interestingly done. They were there for quite a while filming, I think. It winds up becoming kind of about unions. It was really, really interesting. Uh, I think that's almost certainly going to win. It definitely is the favorite. I have a question about this film. If this film wins, does Barack Obama win an Oscar? No, I don't believe so. Okay. Uh, he produced, the Obamas produced this It's under their Netflix deal, but I think documentary feature, just the directors win, whereas like best picture overall, the producers win. Okay. Honeyland is really wonderful and was obviously very popular because it got nominated for international and documentary feature. And I think it's streaming on Hulu in the United States. It's quite experimental isn't exactly the right word, but it, it's not as accessible as American Factory, partially because it's like, set in Macedonia and it's not in English which some people will not like but it's it's not it's not a movie where it's like here we are to inform you about a topic which is often kind of the theme of a lot of documentaries that get nominated it's more sort of 
they went to a location in Macedonia to make a documentary and they were very quickly sidetracked by an individual person who is not famous who they met and then decided to follow this person's life around and then make a film about them. Yeah, she's a beekeeper. And it's very slow. It took me a while to get through it because I was, again, having health issues and it was just like, my back hurts and I'm watching a very slow movie about a beekeeper. But, um, <laughs> but, but it's really, really good. And especially the last sort of half an hour, it's incredible, but you have to like watch the whole movie to get to that point, which clearly the people doing these nominations did. And I think it's a really good film and I would recommend it, but I do not think that the Academy at large is going to vote for that movie. I've heard good things about The Cage and The Edge of Democracy. I haven't seen them, so I can't comment, but I don't think either of them is going to win. The thing I think could upset is For Sama, which is a documentary by this woman, Wad Al-Khateb, who was living in Aleppo during the Syrian conflict and was filming everything, and then she put it together to make this movie. And it's gotten a lot of press basically because she had this extraordinary thing happen to her and the subject matter of the film is, you know, in the news. I watched this recently and I do not think it is a good movie. Obviously, she experienced horrible things. I don't know what to say. Like, I feel for this woman, but she also, she makes some decisions where I was like, I, what? Like, I don't, I will not get into it, but the movie really lost me at a certain point where she made a certain decision regarding her child that I thought was insane. So, again like uh, uh, no comment but um just on a craft perspective like it's just not it's not very well done but i it clearly has received attention and acclaim and this nomination because people think the topic is important which is clearly true and i think that might push it to a win but i don't think it's going to win i think it's going to be american factory which is just a much better film on a like artistic level uh would you like to read out the cinematography nominations so we have mostly Best Picture nominees here with one upset. So The Irishman, Joker, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and The Lighthouse. God bless. What a delight. The Lighthouse is my pick. Yeah. You'll be shocked to hear. <laughs> I have been stunning this film for years. <laughs> I would vote for it also, for sure. I was so happy it got nominated. I mean, just a huge technical accomplishment. That movie looks amazing, amazing, amazing. I think the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood nomination is an absolute fucking joke. I cannot believe that that happened. The Irishman I also would not have nominated. I don't think that movie looks bad, but I don't think it looks great. Joker looks fine. I would not have nominated it. I mean, this was not the best year for cinematography in general. Like, there were movies I loved that looked great, but it wasn't like it was a banner year for, like, oh my god, these incredible films. The winner here is obviously going to be Roger Deakins for 1917. If like the most one certain. does like Roger Deakins. One does like him. He famously was like the most celebrated person in Hollywood who hadn't won an Oscar until Blade Runner twenty forty nine a couple of years ago, and he's going to win another Which, one. Just FYI, is comical because like I think he's a genius and he is like the best. But of all his movies, I felt like that was quite an amusingly ignominious win because it was like sure the film looked good, but it was fucking Blade Runner two. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, and I didn't even. I mean, I wasn't like that was an appalling win. Like it. It was accomplished, but I didn't yeah. even love the cinematography of that. He sh only shoots on digital now, and I have not loved his stuff since that switch. Like, it's good, obviously. He's a master, but there's something a little cold about his recent work, I think. I mean, his work has always been a little bit cold, I think. It's just his style. I prefer Emmanuel Lubezki in terms of, like, the great cinematographers. I think he's better, but... um. 
I mean, I, this is obviously not a horrible win by any means. I actually thought the cinematography of 1917 was less interesting than I was expecting. In terms of, like, the technical accomplishment of making that movie, it's really impressive the, what they did to get the shots. Like, I'm not, like, mad about this, but I thought it was going to be more visually interesting than it wound up being for me. Just to clarify, like, for those who are not aware of the all the behind-the-scenes technical hype for 1917, it's shot and edited in such a way that makes it look like it is one continuous shot. Yeah, which I think is not effective. I wasn't distracted by it particularly watching it. Like, I thought it was executed perfectly fine, but I don't think it serves the story in any way. Well, the key philosophical problem here, right, is that both Sam Mendes, the director, and Roger Deakins have said while promoting the film, the ideal experience is like not being aware that it is shot like that. And it's kind of, it's just meant to make it kind of more immersive. But the problem is that because that's the key element of like promoting the film, the only way to not be aware of it is to like go into the film without really being aware of that. And everyone who is voting in the Oscars is obviously aware of that because it's the only thing anyone's talking about with this film. So it's a very different experience if you know that beforehand, because as a film critic, you're watching it being like, I wonder where the seams are. Right. But I wasn't even thinking about the seams so much. Like, there are a couple moments where you definitely notice them. But I just felt like they they tailored the story to allow that trick to be done. I mean, I thought it was a really interesting project for a former theatre director, because Sam Mendes, kind of, before he was a filmmaker, he was known for making, like, really big stage shows, sort of big West End theatre shows. And this film, a lot of it is very much like watching theatre, because there's lots of lengthy conversations with people either moving through a smaller location or, like, being stationary in one location. And the fact that it's not, like, cutting between people means that, like, you're getting a performance which is more like theatre. I found the film very effective, but I also don't in any way buy into the idea that like longer shots are in some way superior to shorter shots like obviously in most films if you're cutting every three seconds it's bad because there is no reason to do that especially in action movies that's very irritating because it like interrupts the flow of the action for most for the most part but kind of when you get into like really overblown compliments where it's like oh these people managed to like talk for 10 minutes and it's like that's literally just like what theater is (laughs) So, you know, it like all all techniques have to be selected correctly and tailored to the situation. I just felt like, especially once you got into the latter part of the movie, that they were contorting the action to make the shot work, which obviously is partially just how movies work. And that's OK. But like the coincidence is piled up so much in order for the one shot thing to keep going that it diminished my enjoyment of the movie at that point. I very much bought into all of the promotion for the technical accomplishments of this film. I was like, yes, I agree. Good job. Well done, everyone. However, The Lighthouse, obviously fucking great. Uh, Please watch The Lighthouse if you've not seen it already. Listen to our podcast about The Lighthouse. The reason why we both are like really horny for this movie is because it is shot basically using 70-year-old lenses shot in the style of a film from the 1920s, black and white, square aspect ratio, Um, But just the way the film had to be lit um, is very different from like shooting in a traditional modern fashion. A lot of kind of research and skill has to go into that and you end up with a film which has a very particular visual style that is completely unlike any other film you will see come out in the like basically in this decade. And in some ways it's pastiche, but for the most part it feels like a very modern film and it's just like really exciting artistically to watch and daring. And I am glad that uh, this is on the list of otherwise very boring choices. Yes. And uh, I think I know what you would add, but why don't you 
say it for the listeners. Yeah, Portrait of Lady on Fire. And I would add uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which I think are both more interesting than four of these five. So now we're getting into the bigger stuff, which are these screenplay categories. Uh, Let's start with adapted screenplay because that's less interesting. So adapted screenplay is The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, and The Two Popes. Just, what the fuck? (laughs) What is this garbage? Jesus Christ. A couple of these are actually quite funny in terms of the concept of them being adapted, even. Because, <laughs> like, I mean, I I don't disagree that they're adapted, but Joker is not adapted from anything. Like, Joker... It's adapted from a, from pre-existing material. It's adapted material. from, like, the concept of the Joker. Like, it, it does, like, no element of it is, like... That's adapted from a pre-existing character. That's That falls into the rules. You could write, like, an original movie about, like, Julius Caesar, and it would be as adapted as the Joker is. Like, it's not adapted from a comic. I agree that it's adapted and should be in this category. It's just, like, it kind of illustrates the wide variety of films that can be considered adapted. Because, like, Little Women is, like, an extremely traditional, like, we've adapted this book. Right. The Two Popes is adapted by the playwright who wrote the play The Two Popes into a movie that he also wrote. I mean, so, most famously, you know. Damien Chazelle won adapted screenplay for Whiplash because he adapted supposedly from his own short film that was shortened from his original screenplay whiplash as an (laughs) effort to get the movie made so like oh my god i had no idea that is absurd i mean so compared to that joker seems pretty straightforwardly an adaptation to me um i think greta gerwig wins this i would be quite surprised if anything else did just because there's not a hugely compelling case for the alternative i mean the movie got a decent number of adapt- of nominations, but it's not like they were crazy in love with it. But I just don't see an alternative here that's particularly compelling. The screenplay I would have nominated alongside this and would have given the Oscar to is definitely Hustlers. But they didn't go for Hustlers. So do you have a, an ad- addition here? Yeah, I think I would also just go for Hustlers, yeah. actually, because I'm, I'm thinking in my mind of like which things are adaptations and like the Hustlers seems like a really obvious one. Yeah, it's just, it's great. Great script. Moving on to original. Uh, Yeah, so here we have Knives Out, Marriage Story, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. So this is quite, this is just so much better. (laughs) This is such a better list. This is a hot, sexy category. I mean, 1917 getting nominated is ridiculous. Silly. Very silly. There there were good interviews with, so it's Sam Mendes and Christy Wilson Cairns wrote it together and um there were a lot of good interviews with her talking about she's knows a lot about that historical period and i think contributed a lot to the conception of the movie in an interesting way and talked a lot about how people were just like you wrote a movie about war but you are a woman and she was like yes <laughs> like please stop she's also like she's this is like something like her first credit she's yes. quite young she's yes i think maybe 30 or 29 or something she's a scottish writer she is about to rapidly ascend to an explosive degree to make a bunch of other stuff but it's kind of cool that this very big film which is also like squarely an old man movie was co-written by this young scottish woman who no one's really heard of yeah so i'm i'm not massively upset about that even though i think on the merits it's sort of absurd uh knives out obviously fantastic marriage story fantastic parasite fantastic once upon a time in hollywood terrible but you know you can't win them all so i think tarantino has the best shot here he's won before in this category they 
just love him as a writer. This movie is has a bad screenplay, but I think people just think of him so much as a great writer that they kind of I mean he's you know, a famed dialogue writer as well right. and he has a very recognizable dialogue style so it's kind of like when people say Aaron Sorkin's my favorite writer and it's like have you ever considered his qualities right. and it's like no but you definitely can tell that he's written it right so I, I would pick him but I do not at all think it is impossible that Noah Baumbach or Bong Joon-ho and Jin Wahan who co-wrote Parasite I think either of those three is totally, totally possible. I think Bombac has a really good shot because they clearly do love that movie, but it's not going to win anywhere else except for supporting actress, as we will discuss momentarily. Um, it would be really, really cool if Greta Gerwig and Noah Bombeck both won Oscars. Uh, I would love that personally. But yeah, it, this is one of the most up in the air, I think. So you wouldn't go for Knives Out, even though Knives Out was a huge commercial success? Knives Out, there's no fucking way. There's no way okay. it's going to win. It got one nomination. Its reward is this nomination. We shall see. Again, Tarantino gets my predictive pick, but I think this is pretty up in the air. I mean, I would happily see Knives Out, Marriage Story, or Parasite when, like Morgan said, exactly the same reasons, all really great scripts. Yeah. My addition here would be Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Obviously. Amazing script. I think mine would be The Lighthouse, just because it's just so fun. <laughs> They're having a lot of fun with that one. Great dialogue. Yeah. So... Moving into the acting categories, which are all sealed up, which is boring, but what can you do? Supporting actress, Kathy Bates in Richard Jewell, Laura Dern in Marriage Story, Scarlett Johansson in Jojo Rabbit, Florence Pugh in Little Women, and Margot Robbie in Bombshell. So I did not see Bombshell again, I would have, but I was having problems I did not see Jojo Rabbit. I have not seen Richard Jewell because why the fuck would I see Richard Jewell? So I have seen two of these. But uh, Laura Dern is winning. Yeah, I don't think we need to discuss this category no. for more than 10 seconds because it's like Laura Dern's winning. Several of these nominations are stupid. Whatever. And uh, they didn't nominate J-Lo. So that's they did clearly... Th J-Lo is who should right. be winning this. It's just, I don't even want to speak about it. It's too upsetting to me. Uh, supporting actor. So on Supporting Actor, we have Tom Hanks from A Beautiful Day in, in the Neighbourhood, Anthony Hopkins from The Two Popes, where he plays one of the two popes, Al Pacino from The Irishman, Joe Pesci from The Irishman, and Brad Pitt from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And Brad Pitt's, I assume, going to win. Yes, 100%. Which I have no problem with. He is really, really great in that movie. Um, I thought about the performance quite a bit. He is a leading role in that movie. It is absolutely hysterically absurd that they campaigned him successfully as a supporting actor. It's a joke, but whatever. I've made my peace with it. We're going to get a chill acceptance speech and he's going to look really hot. So, Is it like he is the supporting actor because he's like an inch shorter than Leonardo DiCaprio? I don't actually know how their heights like, I think balance out, but it kind of seems like, did they flip a coin? I mean, he's the stuntman to the actor. So he's literally sure. supporting him in the movie, but in terms of who the movie is about, it is equally about the two of them. Yeah, that's just the kind of stupid idea. Yeah. Okay, okay, lead actress. Cynthia Arrivo in Harriet, Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story, Saoirse Ronan in Little Women, Charlize Theron in Bombshell, and Renee Zellweger in Judy, who will win. Like, this is so boring. We have three biopics here. Like, they, this is a stupid oh. category. There has been already, I don't feel like we need to go into the politics of this in any depth, but the fact that it's just like four white women and one black woman who is playing literally Harriet Tubman in a biopic about racism, 
It's just so telling. It's just grim. Um, I've not seen Bombshell, but just the idea of that role being nominated, just like, oh, she really looked and sounded like Megyn Kelly. That is not an impressive piece of like meritocracy, in my opinion. It just, this is a silly category. Yeah, I mean, I would have nominated Aquafina here for sure. The person who really is just, it's absurd that she wasn't nominated as Elfie Woodard, obviously, for Clemency, but that was just not going to happen. They didn't campaign that movie at all. And it's a very upsetting movie about the death penalty. So it was going to be tough anyway, and then they didn't do anything for it. So what are you going to do? But Renee Zellweger, who is perfectly good in Judy, it's not like this is a crime or anything, but it's just boring. I thought it was a good performance. We discussed this in one of our uh, film festival like collective episodes. Yeah. I-, I liked Judy. The-, the film itself is like, it's like a biopic, which I don't generally enjoy biopics. I did enjoy this one, but like artistically, I wouldn't say it was remotely interesting in any way. It's a very conventional type of biopic where it takes place in a certain element, a certain point in a person's life, which I generally prefer to when it like covers the whole life. But like really, this is a movie which was kind of designed in a lab to give someone an uh, Oscar for doing an impression of a famous person who's interesting and has very distinctive facial and vocal characteristics. I mean, everyone just decided she was going to win from the time the first still came out and then they're just doing it. It's just embarrassing for these people, right? Like you have no thoughts about like, Jesus. Anyway, moving on to lead actor. Take it away. Uh, yeah, so lead actor Antonia Banderas, Pain and Glory, Leonardo DiCaprio, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Adam Driver, Marriage Story, Joaquin Phoenix, Joker, and Jonathan Price in The Two Popes. Uh, they got so close to being five for five, and then they felt compelled to nominate Jonathan Price, which was fine in that movie, but like, it's such a bad film. I love that little addition there because it's kind of like if you listen to the like celebrity gossip podcast Who Weekly where they divide celebrities into who's and them's we have four them's here very famous people you will definitely recognize and then Jonathan Hyde Price who is a full who the only reason anyone knows who he is is like you'd be like oh yeah I saw him in Pirates of the Caribbean obviously this man is like an incredible actor who's been in a bajillion things but he is a full who yeah I mean he was very good in The Wife last year which is kind of a who movie Again, he's not bad in this, but the movie is abysmal. And every single other one of these performances is, I mean, I think Joaquin Phoenix is bad Joker, but like, he's great as an actor, I'm, you know, whatever. And Antonio Banderas, who should probably win, is amazing in Pain and Glory, Adam Driver, amazing in Marriage Story, Leonardo DiCaprio, fantastic in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, actually doing comedy. Like, my God, what a thrill. And then Jonathan Price, like, what? no comment. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is going to win this. It is happening. I have totally made peace with this, even though Joker is my least favorite film of 2019, because Joaquin Phoenix should have two Oscars, perhaps three by this point, and people never win for the right thing. It just doesn't happen. So you know what? It's all good, man. It's fine. There are bigger things to worry about. I am okay with this. He's going to give a wild speech. I have no idea what it will be like. So that's some suspense. Even if we know he's going to win, who knows what the fuck he's going to say. It's fine. It's all good. I'm not sure who I would add here. It was. I mean, wouldn't you add Brad Pitt from Ad Astra? That's totally right. Brad Pitt and Ad Astra is the is the person who should be here. He should be the double nominee. I mean, really, he should be nominated for both of those movies in a leading role. But it's fine. I don't have like a genuine addition to this. I do have like a suggestion, which is kind of from like an alternate universe way of the way these this year's Oscars could have gone. And 
it is not a judgment of quality, but I think it is something that could have happened if there was like, because the Oscars are terrible. And it is Matthew McConaughey's performance in Serenity. <laughs> because that movie, before it came out, they really thought they were going for something there. They thought they were like, oh, we're going to make a really experimental and fun, dr- cool drama starring Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway, two like massive Oscar actors. And they made this absolute like shit film, which is absurd. But, you know, shit films win Oscars all the time. So the alternate universe version of this category has Matthew McConaughey in here for sure. I mean, that would have been amazing. The actual person I want to add very quickly is um, Tom Mercier in the film Synonyms, which is an Israeli movie that uh, I didn't love. It was interesting, but not great, I think. But he probably gave my favorite performance this year. Just fucking wild. Uh, Everyone should check that out and see it. It basically starts out with him like running around naked in an apartment. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? And uh, it just gets crazier from there. So uh, synonyms, I recommend that. But that is so not an Oscar movie at all that it didn't cross my mind. Finally, director. And we'll talk about director and picture a little bit in conjunction here because they're connected. So director, uh, Martin Scorsese, The Irishman, Todd Phillips, Joker, Sam Mendes, 1917, Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Bong Joon-ho, Parasite. So. The big discussion has been, are people going to split director and picture, which has happened a lot recently, or are they both going to go to the same movie? If they both go to the same movie, it will be 1917, almost certainly. And then people have been arguing about whether maybe 1917 wins Best Picture and Bong Joon-ho wins Best Director, or Sam Mendes wins, wins Best Director and Parasite wins Best Picture. Those are really the only potential combinations here. No one else in this category has a shot of winning, I think. Yeah, I I agree. But I think the people who are saying maybe 1917 wins picture and Bong Joon-ho wins director are high because whoever wins the Directors Guild, which Sam Mendes did, almost always wins the Oscar. And the history of the past 10 years or so, they have split picture and director a lot, which I like. It spreads the wealth. It's kind of interesting. And they have almost always gone with the director who's done like the big technical splashy thing. So like Ang Lee for one for Life of Pi, Inuritu one for The Revenant, Quaron one for Gravity and Roma. That's the kind of stuff that they are now associating with direction. And obviously those are all like huge technical accomplishments. And 1917 completely falls into that category, right? Like you watch that movie and you're like, how the fuck did they do this? So I think Mendes has that completely locked up. I think the only reason people bon- are thinking Bong Joon-ho might win for Parasite is that they love Bong Joon-ho, which I yeah. understand. Me too. Yeah. But like, that's a small film. I think it's the best directed of these five, but that's not what they're thinking about when they think about direction in this way. I think Parasite has a much better shot at winning picture because people just fucking love that movie. They just love it. And it's preferential balloting is how they do best picture. So basically, like you rank them and then the people who have like Ford v. Ferrari as their number one, that's obviously not going to win. So their votes get allocated to whatever they have as their number two choice, which for most of those people is probably going to be 1917, right? Because they're both dad movies. But then people who liked Little Women probably more go to Parasite, I would guess. I mean, not 100%, but I would suspect more of them go to Parasite. So then the votes get allocated in that way. And then you just keep going until one movie has it's I don't know remember what the percentage is but you have to hit a certain threshold and then you've won best picture and so I think Parasite and 1917 are both going to have a lot of number two votes and the question is basically just which one has the most but the fact that Parasite won SAG is a good sign the actors are the biggest branch of the academy and it just has this feeling to it of 
like being the the zeitgeisty thing. It feels very much like Moonlight to me. It's very zeitgeisty, and also everyone involved is just super charismatic. Like you want to be in a room with Bong Joon Ho and that cast. And I feel like even though people have a lot of respect for Sam Mendes, you're not like, wow, I'm going to tune in to listen to a speech by Sam Mendes. I'm just like, that's a man who's good at his job, you know? And Bong Joon-ho, I'm like, this guy is hilarious and very funny and smart and insightful. And there's also kind of the element of it, like he's, he doesn't really care. Like there's all these, like the kind of fun quotes where he's kind of talking about how the Oscars are like a local film festival, you know? And it's like, in fact, there was an article published recently kind of saying the Oscars need Parasite more than Parasite needs the Oscars. Because like I said earlier, this movie is already a hit. Bong Joon-ho was already a massively successful filmmaker. This movie is like one of the defining films of 2019. And if something really boring wins the best picture, which it often does, everyone will be like, oh, I don't remember what that is in a couple of years. Well, look, it has already won. It's made over $30 million in the United States, which is fucking crazy. And... I was looking at the list of like movies that have won Best Picture for the past decade, and I think winning Best Picture actually usually hurts a movie because it like confers a sense of sort of squareness upon a film, right? In a way that isn't really what you want. And most of the movies that have won in the past decade are things that nobody ever talks about anymore or that people now actively hate. <laughs> when The Artist came out, most people loved that movie. I saw it at MoMA and the director and John Dujardin, the star, were there. And I have rarely seen a more rapturous reception of the film. Like, I loved it. I've only seen it once. It'd be interesting to watch it again. It's a really fun right. film. And everyone now is like, that movie is a piece of shit. It's like, what? It's also like The Shape of Water is so funny because it's like, initially that film was like so fucking weird. Then as the kind of the Oscar season went round, you could really see like the punditry shift. And it's like the quality of the film has not altered and neither has anyone's opinion of Guillermo del Toro. It's just the fact that like once it gets closer to being the front runner and then winning, everyone's like, oh, everyone's forgotten this like stupid film that was really corny. And it's like, it was actually a pretty out there choice. Well, I think that movie is just something that, I mean, I know you love that film. I just think people don't talk about it. And I don't think they're going no, to talk about I mean, it. I mean, I love that film, but it's also not even my... I mean, Guillermo del Toro is like one of my favourite directors, if not my favourite. It's not even my favourite film of his. Like, I think it's brilliant and I'm happy it won for his sake. But like, there are other films of his which I find more interesting. Well, and like movies from that year, like Call Me By Your Name and Phantom Thread and like, I'm sure they're... Oh, and Lady Bird, right? Oh like, yeah, Phantom Thread would have been my pick from that list. That was such a great year. Nobody talks about The Shape of Water. And that's not the most... like. I could go through the whole decade. There are others that you would be like, what? And obviously Green Book is the nadir, but Moonlight is the only one that people still love because it's a great yeah. movie. And that's because it, it felt like an upset. Well, yes. And it is actually a great film. And you have to be that good to survive winning Best Picture. So if Parasite does, it's going to be fine because it's a great movie. But anything else like 1917 wins and fully within two years people will be like wait what movie like <laughs> so it really doesn't matter because if parasite wins i will be so excited it will be awesome and people will still love it if it doesn't win then it'll be like that movie the oscars fucked over because they weren't cool enough to recognize that it should have won and people will still love it nominations matter more than wins for sure because nominations mean people talk about you and people go see you because they want to know what's going on with the Oscars. And it got a bunch of nominations. It's doing well. He's going to have the opportunity to make whatever the fuck he wants, which is the actual benefit of this. 
so it's all good, ma'am. And, you know, I thought 1917 was bad, but we will all survive if it wins the top thing. My prediction, I will predict Parasite wins picture and Mendes wins director just to, to have a little spice. But um, who knows? We shall see. We will have a reaction episode, as we said at the top, on Patreon after the Oscars. So keep an eye out for that. We'll be posting about it on Twitter, etc. Thank you so much for listening through all of this. We hope that you enjoy the Oscars, make fun predictions, have good parties. And uh, yeah, that's it. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, where there are reviews of several of these films, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. It is on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.